0: G'day. My name is Jay Desai. This is Unpixelated Talks. We've all been in situations where we've looked at someone's title and wondered, what does that person do? What value does that title add to the greater organization? So in this series, we're going to explore the granular details attached to a specific title. And more importantly, we'll interact with the person behind the title. So join me as I learn, laugh, and connect with my guests, and we can uncover and explore the granularities of the specific titles, the details of the people in this series, Unpixelated Talks. My guest today is a good friend and currently my colleague, Peter Morales. Peter has had a amazing career in IT. He currently serves as the chief architect at New Relic. Peter has worked in the industry for over 25 years, so where one can arguably say that he's seen it all. So welcome, Peter. It's an absolute honor to have you on the show. Now, handing the mic over to you for your
1: version of your introduction. Hi, hey, Jay. Good to, uh, good to be here, and it's an honor to be your first uh... As guest for this uh, new podcast, unpixelated talks. Really excited to uh, to be part of it and hear other people's stories as well.
0: Pleasure, absolute pleasure, Peter. Now, I I understand uh, your role is that of a chief architect. I've worked with a lot of architects in the past, but for our listeners, can you please explain what does the title chief architect entail?
1: Yeah, I think it's one of those roles where. It's a bit of everything. Um, to be honest, there's this, there's really three types of chief architects in the in the industry. There's one that's you know works for product and engineering, right? So they work on the architecture for the products and services that a company takes to market. Yep. Then there's a chief architect that may work with a customer in the post sales in a post sales capacity, right. where they're helping them architect their their solution. Right. For me, I'm actually in a pre-sales capacity, which is a little bit different. And you know, fundamentally, what I do is I, you know, I help uh, deliver technical leadership for the company and provide guidance. And a lot of that guidance is a mix of technical and business, and yeah. also market. So, what does the market uh, think of the company? Um, do people understand our value proposition? in the market, do our customers understand it? And a chief architect really, you know, has to have fairly broad knowledge of infrastructure, software, systems, even algorithms and so forth, coding languages, uh, because they have to deal with a lot of different domains. If you think about, uh, you know, an architecture division within a customer, you'll typically have different architecture domains, And you have to be able to converse with each of them to help them understand how does your solution fit into that customer's architecture.
0: Right. Uh, thanks, Peter. So now putting my pre-sales hat on, and if I ask you the questions from a pre-sales perspective, that what are your touch points of or points of intersection from a pre-sales perspective? Like when does a pre-sales person come to you with a question or for guidance or for a customer engagement?
1: Yeah, I guess there's a lot of different scenarios I, I get involved in. It's really typically what happens is a presales person. It feels like they're out of their depths. Perhaps you know we're veering into a domain that they're just not experienced in. It could be networking, could be security, it could be you know operating systems. Uh, so that's one scenario. The other scenario is where you know the customer does actually have an architecture team. And I want to understand, you know, how can we work with that team? What are the needs of that team? What are the expectations? How do we help them develop the standards? How do we get those standards ratified? Um, Because, you know, not all pre-sales consultants will have that, um, I guess, uh, experience dealing with those different personas uh, within those accounts. So it's getting involved in that space as well. And then there's also um, strategy. Um, and then also the market. So where customers want to understand what's the company strategy, uh, what's our, what's the market doing? How has the market evolved? How has technology evolved? Right? Because there's no technology that stands still. It's always evolving and improving. And so a chief architect should come with a lot of experience, right? Should have understand how the technologies evolve, why it's evolved, and you know what are the benefits of evolving with the technology in those particular accounts. So that's just some examples, but yeah, there's there's plenty of others as well. Very
0: broad range that.
1: So if I can
0: ask how much sleep does a chief architect get?
1: <laughs> well, the one you're talking to at the moment is not a lot. Um, yeah, I guess that's one of the challenges, right? Is this sort of staying up to date with everything um, and then having, you know, having that knowledge current is 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 very difficult to 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 maintain. Um, it's definitely but getting harder for me. That that is a challenge for everyone
0: of us in the tech industry. Keeping our knowledge current, it's like a continuous cycle where I find myself learning every single day, and it feels like it's just not ending. The more you learn, more you more you learn, that less you know, and the more you learn, the less you know. So, yeah, anyways, yeah. let's rewind the clock back a bit, Peter. Let's talk. About the Peter when he was getting a lot of sleep uh, back in the early days, how did you get in a career of IT?
1: Well, it was a bit unconventional, right? Um, when I was young, in uh, in primary school, actually, I was uh, preoccupied with computers. Uh, I didn't spend too much time doing my homework. <clears throat> I spent more time, you know, disassembling uh, PCs and electronics and. Uh, you know reverse engineering operating systems so my upbringing was a little bit different i didn't actually end up doing computer science um i did not have the grades uh i did not have the money and i did not have the maturity to actually study so i ended up uh you know being completely self-taught i had lots of books on my bookshelf i had uh you know, TCPIP Illustrated, the Addison Wesley series. I had uh, all the programming languages, uh, you know, C, the C programming book. Oh, those um, books bring back memories. Those, those books
0: can make grown men cry.
1: <laughs> it's funny. I actually threw out a, a whole bunch of books recently and I kept a lot of those because I just, that was very sentimental. But, you know, that's, yeah, you know, for me, that was the library. That was the Bible. That's uh, That's how I learned and that's how I ended up landing a job, um, you know, actually doing, uh, started out as a programming job. Nice. Um, and then sort of, you know, spiraled from there into a lot of other different areas.
0: Right. So what was, what was that first job? Like, what were the requirements for you to get into that role?
1: Yes. So whilst I was, I guess when I, whilst I was in in high school and then finished up high school, I was actually helping a friend uh, manage an internet service provider. So this is back in the day of dial-up internet, right? Right. Um, we had, uh, we had uh, some servers and some, I um, can't remember what they call them these days, but essentially dial-up modems. We had them in an office in the ex- Exhibition Street. <clears throat> And I think we had over ten thousand customers, right, using this pretty low, you know, low-cost internet service provider. And we actually had our internet feed coming over satellite. So we actually had a satellite dish on the top of Exhibition one of the buildings, pulling in internet from the US because it was a lot cheaper than doing it over the wire. We're getting back to that with Starlink at the moment. That's it. I I was doing Starlink uh, 20, 22 years ago. But anyway. um, So, yeah. So, that's how I got a lot of practical experience on how to manage systems, how to deal with customers and issues and help desk and so forth. And uh, I learned how to program as well as as part of that, uh, you know, that time. And there was another internet service provider. That I can't remember how they got onto me. but They actually wanted me to develop some web applications.
0: Right. They must have found you on LinkedIn, Peter.
1: I don't think LinkedIn exists back then. (laughs) I think uh, I'll I'll tell you something. I actually built the first internet registry for um, Australia. It didn't go anywhere, but um, it was one of the things I built in Perl. But anyway, that's a different story. Um, So, yes, I ended up landing this job. Uh, writing some web apps for this other internet service provider. And then they actually employed me full time as their system and network administrator.
0: Very, very interesting. So you acquired the skills from the books, self-taught, landed a job, and word of mouth, you found another role. That is just Something which is unheard of in the modern world right now, like right now, even before someone comes to talk to you, you've scanned their LinkedIn profile. You know exactly all the ten previous companies they worked for and whatnot. Uh,
1: yes. yeah it was de- it was definitely different um, different to what would happen today, I think so talking about
0: the fun stuff, peter i I am aware I'm acutely aware that with your role, there is a lot of travel, and uh, there's also of course, the hectic side of the travel, but also the perks of travel. I'm sure you've visited a lot of beautiful uh, countries and cities, but I'll get you to pick uh, one city which you've traveled to, which you really enjoy to, which you'll go back to, and why.
1: Yeah, I've been to some um, different places, some uh, that most people probably haven't been to. Um, They weren't necessarily the best, though. (laughs) So I'll pick the best one. The best ones, you know, for me is probably uh, Tokyo. Um, you know, is, I've been to Tokyo many times. We actually used to run executive briefings there whilst I was at EMC and Dell. Um, so I frequent there quite often. And I guess the reason I love it is the people, you know, the people in Japan are very friendly. They're very polite yeah. and, and more importantly, the customers, you know, the customers there are just, they're not difficult, right? right? They're, they're very honest and respectful. And they're very clear on what their requirements are. And if, if, you, know, if you meet their requirements, they don't play games. No. And so for me, um, that's a place I enjoy going back to. Obviously, the, uh, the food's great as well. And there's a lot to do there. If you get time, uh, spend some time to travel around Japan, there's a lot of things you can do, a lot of interesting places you can visit and see. Perfect.
0: And on the same note, uh... What was the, I, I, please don't name the customer, but what was the most challenging engagement you've worked for?
1: The most challenging engagement um, it was actually an Australian customer. I went and then um, it was, a, I think it was the largest um, IT project in Australia at the time. Right. In terms of IT spend. Right. You probably know who the customer is. Yes, uh, I'm, sure a
0: lot of, I'm sure a lot of listeners on the call who belong to Australia would have easily figured out. Yeah. The moment you they the largest IT spend. but yeah, let's not name the folks. Yeah. But what, what, was, what was the role you had and what, what did you contribute to that project?
1: Yeah, so I was, I was the chief architect for a particular vendor at the time. Um, and I was working as the chief architect for... The customer um, and this very large project, so I was essentially setting the setting the architecture for the particular domain that I was working in at the time, and then working with other architects and other consultants to actually you know implement and do the migrations, uh, the performance uh, performance tuning and so forth. Right. So it was quite a large project that had too um, many moving parts. Two moving months. parts. But uh, I think it, why, why was it challenging is because uh, it was, you know, it was a major transformation. Right. You know, we were going from something that was, you know, uh, very different to, to where we started. And it was challenging in terms of the, <clears throat> the timelines and the uh, after hours, you know, that had to be done to do the migrations, right? Because things could not be done during business hours. Right. So that's, that's why it was challenging. It was both challenging technically and challenging personally as well. I can imagine. Now, continuing on the challenging part, Peter, uh,
0: what are the challenges of a chief architect? Like, what I know you interact with, uh, with a lot of other personas, a lot of other uh, senior management, and a lot of junior folks as well. But what is the most challenging part of being a chief architect?
1: Yeah, I think the challenging part is the expectation that the title comes with. There's an expectation that you know uh, everything, uh, and to a very deep level. Um, so that is a challenge. Um, I guess the other challenge is you have to, you know, you have to, particularly when you're working in a in an APAC region. There's customers in different regions that are different stage of the life cycle and have different levels of maturity so you actually have to take that into account um when you're you know when you're dealing with those customers otherwise you could come off as uh perhaps not understanding their unique situation and different countries have different levels of maturity so you have to um, mold into that scenario so that you you know you get the best outcome for for the customer so yeah i mean that that is that is a challenge there's plenty of other challenges right um again, I think expectations is a big one, and so staying up to date with the technology as we talked is uh is very time consuming. Um, I guess the other one is you know typically people come to me for a problem that's never been solved before right right so a, there's an expectation that regardless of what it is. Uh, there will always be a a solution, or if there's not a solution, at least a path. Yeah. Um, so that that is also a challenge, right? Because uh, you you tend to wear, you know, wear again that that expectation, um, so that you know we can move forward on whatever whatever the scenario is at the time. Right.
0: Ah, uh, very very interesting indeed, and of course very challenging. Now let's shift some gears. Now we've got you on the line, uh, you work for New Relic, so we have to talk about observability. Now, I'm not gonna cover the basics of observability, but you listeners can search that on your own. But I'm gonna include some of the links to CNCF projects. And if you go and search on there, you'd find a multitude of initiatives which are engaging monitoring or observability in some regard. So one can use multiple analogies to define observability, but the one which is closest to me is that of a car and its dashboard. So a car may not need the dashboard to drive, to run. However, if you'd like to know how fast you're going or what speed you're going or how much fuel you left, that's what you need observability for. And so Peter, uh, pass the mic to you on your analogy of observability and why do we need observability in this modern world?
1: In my analogy, is slightly different. Um, what you described is the instrumentation, right? What you see on the dashboard. Um, that's the analogy. I I use a similar analogy for the airplane, nice. just because there's a lot more knobs, right? <laughs> and it looks it's more impressive. Uh, but for me, that's actually monitoring, because that, all you're looking at is the things you know about, the things you understand. You know, is the fuel gauge? Is do you still have fuel? How fast are you going? So forth. Um, what's your altitude really for me observability is the things you don't know it's what happens when that plane crashes right how do you determine what caused that crash it's not the instrumentation it's actually the black box the black box in the plane that's been recording all the signals you know 24 by 7 in the event that something unexpected actually happens you should be able to explain it. And so for me, that is the true definition of observability. It's, it's being able to solve problems you've never experienced before without necessarily having planned for them, right? right. And monitoring has an implied assumption that you, you've planned for it, you've seen it before, therefore you're monitoring for it. Um, but doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to address uh, every scenario and every every problem in the future. So that's really the I think um, the definition of observability. Now, why is it important? Um, it's important because if you know we go back 20 years, infrastructure, software, the way it was built and developed was way easier than it is today. You know, back then we had a couple of languages. We had, you know, didn't really have the cloud. Not much was distributed right, everything was scale up, not out. Um, Didn't have that many engineers working on one one project at at any one time. And we didn't really have that many users accessing our software, right? We didn't have, you know, mobile phones were really expensive back then. Um, So, you know, everything's just turned upside down now. Everything I've just said is the opposite today everything's distributed, everything's polyglot. There's hundreds or thousands of engineers touching this stuff every day. Everyone's accessing it 24 by seven, right? Through iPads, mobiles, web browsers. So there's never a good time to do, make a change. So right?
0: true. And,
1: and every change- Everyone's is got thing. so every many change. devices now. So, yeah,
0: everyone's got so many devices, like i'm um, I'm sure our listeners can attest to that as well that uh, each individual out there, I can count about five different devices which are connected to internet sitting on my desk right now. Everyone can uh, relate to that. So you can think about the number of connections, the number of users going out and hitting these services. So so yeah, absolutely, to the point, distributed system is where we're at right now, and that's why observability is. Definitely important. Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. Now, if you weren't a tech professional, Peter,
1: what would you be? If I wasn't a tech professional, um, I would be a DJ. <laughs> <laughs> that is classic. I
0: did not see that coming. DJ, do you have a mixer?
1: Uh, I did. I still have vinyl records, actually, um, two crates of them. Um, that was that was one of my hobbies when I was, you know, into computers. Part of it was electronic music, and uh, both, you know, composing electronic music using both computers and and uh, electronic keyboards. So and and uh, synthesizers. Ah, so, synthesizer. yeah. I was into that early early on, but what I realized is that <clears throat> it didn't make enough money <laughs> so, <laughs> so I ended up uh, you know sort of ditching that and um going full steam ahead into i t
0: now synthesizers brings back memories. I think was it blue Monday what the start of the That's one of, era yeah. in in the music now, What would be your coaching for young professionals in IT right now? Now, this is a two-folded question. So number one, what is your advice for the young professionals? And also advice for people within the industry looking at uh, adopting uh, or working towards a title of a chief architect?
1: Yeah, I guess um, be patient. It will take time. (laughs) Right. I think these days um, there's an expectation that, you know, these things happen quickly. And certainly that has not been my experience. Um, I guess for me, it's for someone that's sort of just starting out. um, You know, one of the things I would say is surround yourself with smart people. Right. Uh, That was one of the, one of the, uh, I guess, One of the things I experienced, you know, when I reflect back is that when I'm, you know, after I worked for internet service providers, I went and worked for a consulting firm. Uh, And, you know, I was just surrounded by really smart consultants, you know, Unix consultants, uh, system consultants, um, not just from a technical perspective, but also they had really strong business acumen on how to deal with customers, How to work with customers, you know, how to both achieve the customer outcome, but also achieve the outcomes that the company you're you're working working for want to achieve. So I think that's really important, particularly when you're just starting out, because it really will accelerate your your learning. Um, And there's a lot of things you'll learn that you just won't find in a textbook, right? I think the second thing is, you know, keep educating yourself. Like don't wait for the company to educate you. Pick up a book, um, do a course, you know, educate yourself. Because if you want to build credibility with customers, I think what customers really gravitate towards is people they can learn from, right? Things that they can learn from quickly without having them to go do the level of education that you've done. So that's a, a second one. I think the th- the third one would be um, instead of going straight into pre-sales, so if that's your objective to get into pre-sales, my advice is start in post-sales.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Actually learn the way of building things and implementing things for customers because then you actually get a much better appreciation for for customers and what they go through, right? What are the processes, the policies? Uh, and the cultural issues that you actually have to deal with when you work with a customer on a project, to you know, to architect, to implement, design something, right? You'll get a better appreciation for that, um, and you'll become a lot more credible in in a pre-sales capacity because you're going to be able to relate to to that customer a lot more. Because fundamentally, what does pre-sales do? They, you know, they convince the customer to you know buy and implement your products and services but fundamentally it's the customer that has to go and implement them so if you have experience in that then you just become a lot more valuable to that customer without necessarily having to implement it for them you kind of give them a head start Um, and then another two things i strive to do is do your best every time right you know I, i say to people you know whilst you're starting out don't cut corners Uh, do your best and then also pay attention to detail. Um, I find that uh, when you pay attention to detail, you deliver better outcomes for for the customer and they really appreciate that, right? Customers don't want to go back and forth on conversations or projects or implementations, right? They don't have the time. So you really have to be sensitive uh, to that and deliver your best quality and your best work.
0: Yeah, that that is very great. I think the two key takeaways for me from that suggestion would be the last one, which you said that pay attention to detail, uh, put your best foot forward, no matter what you do, and the second one, which resonated really well with me, is that every good pre-sales person I have ever worked with have always had some experience working in post-sales. They've always been consultants, delivering solutions at customer sites at some stage in their careers and then they have moved on to pre-sales. So they are the ones who have been amazing pre-sales professionals. But with that, Peter, thank you very much for your time. I have included your LinkedIn profile in the summary below for our guests to connect with you. But with that, I I thank you very
1: much for being the first guest on the Unpixelated Talks. Thanks Jay, I'm really honored. And thanks everyone.
0: So how good was Peter? Yes, I know I did cut Peter off midway through his conversation once, but I'm learning. So to the audience members, please provide us your feedback on how we went, what was really interesting, what we could include in the future episode, and how we could do better. So until next time, thank you all for listening.